President Biden will meet with South Korea's president today to discuss U.S. efforts to protect the country from nuclear weapons. It's Wednesday, April 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, that meeting comes on the heels of Biden's re-election announcement and renewed debate over whether he's too old for the presidency. He has been dismissed and discounted at every turn and still overperformed expectations. Also, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy works to convince his party to support his debt ceiling plan. And this hour, why establishing a ceasefire in Sudan is important to lives both inside and outside of the warring country. Sudan sits at the crossroads between North Africa, the Horn of Africa, and into the Red Sea, where $700 billion of economic trade flows. Celtics lose, Red Sox win, mostly cloudy with temperatures in the low 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The White House says President Biden will announce new steps to contain the nuclear threat posed by North Korea. NPR's Giles Snyder reports these include sending the first American nuclear ballistic submarine to South Korea in 40 years. President Biden is expected to unveil a stepped-up effort to deter North Korea with South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol by his side. The deterrence plan is being called the Washington Declaration. And aside from sending the first nuclear ballistic submarine to South Korea since the early 1980s, U.S. officials say the plan includes the formation of a nuclear consultative group along the lines of what the U.S. did with European allies during the Cold War. Yoon is in the U.S. for a state visit as the two countries mark the 70th anniversary of their alliance. He and President Biden are to hold a joint news conference, and there will be a state dinner later in the evening. Giles Snyder, NPR News. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today in the case of a Minneapolis grandmother. Her condominium was seized by Hennepin County for failure to pay property taxes. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports at issue is the way many states handle the sale of homes to pay off overdue taxes. Geraldine Tyler doesn't dispute that she failed to pay her property taxes for five years after she moved out of her condo. The county says it offered multiple ways to make affordable payments and finally sold the property at public auction. Tyler argues that because the condo sold for $25,000 more than the $15,000 that she owed, she's entitled to the excess money as just compensation for taking her property. But the county maintains it made no profit in auctioning off her abandoned property and that she had no equity in the condo since the forfeiture automatically canceled the $59,000 in mortgage payments and condo fees that she owed. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. A shaky three-day truce is mostly holding in parts of Sudan. Two warring generals have been battling each other for control of the country. Nearly two weeks of violence have left about 460 people dead and thousands injured. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warns the Sudanese fighting could spiral out of control into a regional conflict. These 10 days of violence and chaos are heartbreaking. A prolonged full-scale war is unbearable to contemplate. Sudan borders seven other countries from Egypt to Ethiopia. The White House says a key militant has been killed in Afghanistan by the Taliban. The militant is considered the mastermind behind the attack on the Kabul airport in 2021 during the U.S. withdrawal from that country. 13 U.S. service personnel and scores of Afghans were killed in that explosion. 
You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Education Board is taking steps to address a statewide teacher shortage. Board members voted yesterday to ease regulations, making it easier for licensed educators to teach other subjects, like English as a second language and special education. Education Commissioner Jeff Riley says both those areas have been hit especially hard by staffing shortages. What we're trying to do is uh, be a little more flexible than we've been in the past, Um, with the understanding that at some point we'll probably tighten back up later, but to deal with this issue to make sure that our classes are fully staffed. We're trying to be creative in some of the approaches we're using. The department also hopes to create new provisional licenses for school nurses. The city of Boston is on track to spend all its federal pandemic relief funds by the 2026 deadline. That's according to a report released this week by the Boston Municipal Research Bureau. It found that the majority of the $560 million Boston received in funds went to housing and economic stimulus programs. The report notes the city will need new funding to sustain those programs after the pandemic money runs out. A coalition of Massachusetts health care groups is launching an initiative today to reduce medical errors. The effort comes in response to data from the Betsy Lehman Center for Patient Safety, which found there were 62,000 cases of preventable harm to Massachusetts patients in a single year. WBOR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey reports. Rates of medical harm, such as medication and diagnosis errors, remain high despite decades of work to improve patient safety. And the COVID pandemic set progress back, according to Dr. Doug Salvador, Chief Quality Officer at Bay State Health. The stresses on the healthcare system that were created by the pandemic have really made care worse. The coalition includes doctors, hospitals, nursing homes, and state agencies. Their plan calls for better data collection and policies that foster a culture of safety. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. A former Harvard professor will be sentenced in court today for lying to the government about his ties to China. Charles Lieber was part of a program that recruited high-level scientists to work with Chinese universities. Lieber was convicted in 2021 on charges related to lying to the government and tax fraud. Prosecutors want him to spend 90 days in prison. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. The Celtics missed a chance to move on to the second round of the playoffs. They fell to Atlanta last night, 119-117. The Seas now only have a one-game lead in the series over the Hawks. The teams will face off again tomorrow in Atlanta. Meanwhile, the Red Sox are celebrating a road win. They beat the Orioles last night by two runs. That series is now tied. A final game this afternoon will determine who comes out on top. The Bruins are back at home tonight for Game 5 of their playoff series against the Florida Panthers. In your forecast, we'll have Mostly cloudy skies today with high temperatures in the low 50s. Tonight, temperatures dip to the low 40s. There's a slight chance of showers overnight. Tomorrow, patchy fog in the early morning and a chance of rain throughout the day. Otherwise, mostly cloudy with temperatures reaching the high 50s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 707. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world 
where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Let's address one question that voters have raised about President Biden's bid for a second term. An NBC survey the other day showed most Americans do not want Biden to run again, and many, not all but many, said his age was a concern. There is a right-wing version of this critique highlighting whatever Biden may have done on camera that can be made to seem odd, but there is another version of this critique that's just numbers. The president is 80. He's been on the stage for decades, and his many past speeches include this critique of then-candidate Donald Trump at the 2016 Democratic Convention. He's trying to tell us he cares about the middle class. Give me a break. That's a bunch of malarkey. Powerful speech seven years ago. Seven years later, in his State of the Union address before Congress, the president's voice sounded a bit thinner, although he easily answered Republican hecklers and made a case for his stewardship. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs, more jobs created in two years than any president's created in four years because of you all, because of the American people. You hear the president's case for the economy there, but how does he answer that age question? David Axelrod knows the president well. Axelrod was chief strategist for President Obama's campaigns, with, of course, Biden as his running mate. He's now a senior political commentator for CNN. Mr. Axelrod, welcome back. Good to be with you, Steve. Okay, age is a sensitive topic. Uh, People would not like to discuss it at all, really. But do you agree that in this case, it's an issue, as many voters seem to think? I mean, I think that's indisputable when you look at polling, when you uh, watch focus groups. Uh, it's the thing that people bring up first. It's the con- if you ask if they have any concerns, that's the concern that they bring up. So it's, uh, it's an issue, and it's an issue for the reason that you say we are in uncharted waters. Uh, we've never had a president this old, and when he finishes his term, he, he, he would be uh, 86 years old. And so, yes, it's going to be an issue in the campaign. You have seen presidents operate. You've seen one very close. Uh, How physically draining is this job? Well, it's the hardest job on the planet uh, because you have incoming hour by hour, and the hours may be in the middle of the night. uh, And every decision you make is a weighty decision that affects lives, that affects fortunes. Uh, So, uh, yes, it's, it's a very very difficult job. How does the president answer that? What is the way that you would advise? Well, you know how he has answered, which is to say, watch me. And I was struck actually by the clips that you played because that appearance at the State of the Union was one of the high points of his administration. And if, if, if you were to ask his administration, his supporters, uh, his staff about uh, this very question that you just asked me, they'd point to that speech and they'd say he stood on his feet for an hour, uh, he engaged his hecklers, uh, and he was triumphant. And that's what he, I mean, that's what they're going to say, just just watch him. Uh, but I don't think that that is necessarily going to be enough. He's going to have to talk about it, and he's going to have to talk about the obvious uh, uh you know, risks involved with that, but also the upside of it. And that the upside are wisdom, the upside is experience, the upside is perspective. And at a time when there's so much churn and turmoil, 
those three qualities are assets for him. Uh, I've thought about that when observing his presidency. The, the people around him have insisted, for example, that Twitter is not real life, that the latest thing on social media maybe doesn't have to be reacted to at all. Um, mm-hmm. And there is a kind of stability in that approach. Yeah, there is. There is. And I think that's why people elected Joe Biden in the first place. Remember, age was an issue the last time he ran and the Republicans ran this issue at him. And uh, that was part of the answer that he gave. And his qualities were qualities that people wanted after the uh, sort of chaotic reign of Donald Trump. Now, uh, you know, even though we're talking about this issue today, and I do think it's an issue, we also, you know, he, he, he often says, don't, don't judge me uh, versus the almighty, judge me uh, versus the alternative. Um, and I think that's what they're counting on now, his strategist, that this isn't going to be a referendum on Joe Biden. This is going to be a choice. And the choice very well may be the same choice we faced four years ago. And of course, Donald Trump, we should note, is just four years younger than Biden. He's in his mid-70s. Mm-hmm. Would that be a concern for Republican voters in the same way? Well, well, it might be. It might be. Uh, I think that that will be an issue that a lot that Nikki Haley is making generational change a fundamental uh, aspect of her campaign. I think that argument is going to be made uh, by others because you can't really exploit this vulnerability as well in Biden if you uh, run a candidate who's basically the same age. If, if very briefly, if either party ends up with a younger candidate, can they make that argument that it's just time to move on from the politics of the past? They can make that argument, and I think it will land with some voters. And, uh, you know, they'll choose between that and those qualities that I mentioned before, wisdom, experience, and perspective. David Axelrod, former Obama strategist, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you. Now to a challenge on the other side of the aisle. Kevin McCarthy is facing his first major test as Speaker of the House. He told reporters last night he plans a vote on his plan to cut government spending. That's the price he's put on the table in exchange for agreeing to raise the debt ceiling so the U.S. government can avoid default. And the deadline for that is coming. But he's got a very thin majority and some holdouts in his caucus. McCarthy was on Fox News Sunday trying to ramp up pressure on the White House to negotiate budget cuts in exchange for raising the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion. I think as president and the leader of the free world, this is one of the problems we have challenges around this country, around the world. He needs to show leadership and come to the negotiating table instead of put us in default. This is risky what he's doing. He's threatening the markets. We called Noah Rothman for his take on the politics of all this. He's a senior writer for National Review, the conservative magazine. Good morning, Mr. Rothman. Good morning. So McCarthy can only afford to lose a few votes from his caucus to pass this bill. What's your take on this? Will he have the votes? Well, it didn't look like he did for most of the week following his speech announcing this plan at the New York Stock Exchange. However, we've had some movement late last night and the Rules Committee voted uh, to some make, make some uh, peripheral changes to ethanol tax breaks, for example, and new uh, implementation of the rules that would uh, rescind or, or impose some work requirements on federal benefits programs. And that may shake the votes loose. Initially, we had some ha- handful of lawmakers who said they wouldn't vote to raise the debt ceiling under any circumstances, um, as well as others who didn't want to change work requirements, who wanted to address the primary drivers of the nation's debt, good faith spending uh, deficit hawks. But this might shake the votes loose. And if it does, that does change the calculus substantially for Democrats, and especially the White House, that had convinced itself it didn't have to negotiate at all. All right, let me hear. I'm going to pause on that thought for just a minute. Let's just 
What will it mean for McCarthy if he can't get his bill passed in the House? I mean, people may remember that kind of ugly battle over attaining the speakership to begin with. Could this put his speakership in jeopardy? I could. I mean, I, I, if anybody invested in the longevity of uh, Mr. McCarthy's speakership after how he attained it, uh, that was a bad bet. Uh, it would certainly jeopardize his speakership if he were to put forward a clean debt ceiling resolution and rely on Democratic votes to pass it. Uh, in that event, yes, his speakership would certainly be imperiled. Uh, so it's a big bet from, from Speaker McCarthy's position. But it's a bet they seem to be invested in to the degree that they're willing to make changes to this package, even when they said they wouldn't. Tell us a little bit more about what you've learned about what his strategy is for bringing this bill to the floor. How is he firming up these votes? Well, behind the scenes negotiations have been very closed, tight-lipped. We haven't seen uh, anything approaching a whip count in public in the public press. In fact, uh, as of last night in Annie Carney's piece in New York Times, the assumption was that the votes were not there. This morning, that calculation has changed following this 2 a.m. rules vote, and I think all bets are off. Uh, if they bring it to the floor, I anticipate that they have the the assumption that they will manage to get this through very narrowly. So you heard the, 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 the statement by Speaker McCarthy saying that, you know, that, look, this is the White House's problem and the president's being irresponsible by not negotiating. So far, the Democrats have held firm. But look, the pressure is also on them as he prepares, uh, the, as Mr. Biden prepares his 2024 reelection bid. But he's asking for a clean bill, as you said, a budget increase without any concessions. Does that calculation change if Speaker McCarthy can present a united Republican front? I think it does, or at the very least it should. Uh, look, voters saw fit to give Republicans control of the chamber from which all spending bills originate. Uh, that is the political reality with which this White House must contend. If, Dem if Republicans manage to present a united front to Joe Biden, look, the White House Democrats can demagogue the prospect of work requirements for federal aid programs. They can say, well, these, this strips uh, climate change spending and the Inflation Reduction Act, and we don't want that, and you don't want that. But Republicans have an argument, too. They could say that this administration is holding fast to, for example, uh, unobligated un uh, spending that was dedicated to the pandemic emergency, which is now over. And that's what you're going to head to a uh, to a default over. That's what we're playing chicken over. That's a compelling argument as well. Uh, I do think that uh, both Democrats and Republicans will have to go to the table if this package passes and mm -hmm. Republicans demonstrate that they can actually unify around this plan. Well, you called it demagoguery. I think that Democrats might argue that, demo you know, bringing up work requirements at this stage is demagoguery. But having said that, you know, there is such a thing called regular order. As you mentioned, the House <laughs> has a role, a constitutional role in setting the budget. Is there... Any thought at any point in our history that people might return to regular order where, you know, the White House sends the budget, House and Senate discuss it, they have hearings, they send it back. What is that? Is that, is that even within the realm of possibility? In our lives. I mean, it is definitely a, a lovely thought. We've been talking about it for a decade. You know what the primary obstacle to that is? Is transparency in Washington. As much as we might, we might not dislike it, but if we were to record, for example, only ma major vote tallies rather than individual votes, it might make it easier on members to actually return to a regular order budget process. That is Noah Rothman. He's a senior writer for National Review. Noah Rothman, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBOR. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in four minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from the leaders of a group that works with wealthy British families to pay reparations to Caribbean countries for their role in colonialism and enslavement. Then at 740, the U.S. and other countries are still struggling to bring two warring generals in Sudan to a ceasefire. We look at why stability in Sudan is so important for international leaders. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation, presenting Rafi and his Beluga grads live at the Orpheum on May 7th. Proceeds benefit the Rafi Foundation for Child Honoring. LiveNation.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, a standoff at the Bristol County Jail. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage and renewed questions about inmate living conditions. WBUR's Deborah Becker joins us from the newsroom on the incident and what it says about new Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harrow's plans for change. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly cloudy today with a high around 52. Tonight, still mostly cloudy and a low around 42. Overnight, there's a chance of rain. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy again with rain possible and a high around 55. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 721. Beyond listening here, your inbox is the easiest way to follow the news from WBUR. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today is a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Sign up now at WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. What if you found out that your ancestors enslaved hundreds of people, even a thousand people, and that's the source of your family's wealth and status today? That's the experience of our next two guests. But unlike some who have chosen to deny or ignore such knowledge, they have decided to embrace it. Laura Trevelyan is a former longtime broadcaster with the BBC. David Lassels is a second cousin of King Charles. They are two of the people who have started a group called Heirs of Slavery. It's comprised of people whose ancestors supported and profited from the transatlantic slave trade. They join us to talk about their family histories and their effort to make amends. It seems pretty extraordinary, doesn't it, that my ancestors enslaved Africans on the Caribbean island of Grenada. And when slavery was abolished by Britain's parliament in 1833, in 1834, it wasn't the enslaved who received compensation. It was the slave owners who were paid because that was the only way that abolition could get through Britain's parliament. So what was already a horrific situation was then made uh, even more unfair. And I discovered this soon after University College London published the database of the compensation that was paid to Britain's slave owners. 
David, same for you. Did you hear about this through this database? No, we've known about this history for a little while. Um, We unearthed in the basements here of Herald House some boxes of archives detailing the Nassau's family's business in the West Indies at that time. Obviously, the broad strokes were known. Um, I know how I received it, which was that clearly something on on the back of it, something had to be done. And the first thing that had to be done was that that research, those papers, um, needed to be shared. As I recall, your family got about, what, 26,000 pounds in 1835. What would that be today? Uh, Upwards of two million pounds, something like that. Hmm. So, Laura, by the time you learned of this, I think that was in 2016, you had already written a book about your family, but this chapter was not in it. And I'm just wondering why you think that is, that why this was not history that you'd been acquainted with, didn't even really know that this was part of your family's story. Why do you think that is? Yeah, and I was embarrassed by that in 2016, especially someone, you know, who purported to be a family historian and had written a book. But clearly in Britain, you know, there's a habit of just sweeping the whole history of Britain's role in slavery under the rug. And quite clearly that's what had happened with my family. Laura, you've worked in both the UK and the US. How did the idea of reparations come to you? Well, it came because I went to Grenada to make a BBC documentary and I met the chair and the vice chair of Grenada's National Reparations Committee, respectively Arlie Gill and Nicole Philip Dow. And I talked to them about this horrible history of my ancestors and the sugar trade. So I just posed the question, you know, what do you think I should do? What do you think the responsibility of our family is? And they both replied in the same way, which is that, you know, on our side of the ledger is a legacy of wealth extraction, poverty, and on your side of the ledger is wealth and privilege. And so in discussing the issue with the wider family, people felt that an apology was important and necessary and would set an example and would be part of the healing. And education would be an important thing to fund. So I'm giving £100,000 to bursaries for university students in Grenada and also money to help rural school children with the cost of getting to school and with school supplies in Grenada. What about the question of guilt? Do you feel guilty? No, I don't personally feel guilty because it wasn't me, but I do feel ashamed of what my ancestors did. I'm ashamed that they were absentee slave owners sitting in Britain, sipping their tea, no doubt putting sugar into it as people did then, which was what drove the whole trade in sugar and profiting from what was happening thousands of miles away. But I do think that if your position in the world today derives in some way from the profit that your ancestors made from slavery, then yes, you have a responsibility to confront that. And I think it's more about a duty to try to do the right thing. David, what about you? It's about accountability in the end, isn't it? I mean, I agree completely with what Laura's saying. I don't feel personally guilty. I mean, many people were made directly rich by it, like my family, like Laura's family, like the families of the other people involved in our group. But the whole country benefited from it. It's a national issue. You know, so I think we as individuals are accountable for trying to do something about it in their own way and also trying to get more people talking about it. David, you're a cousin to the king. Are you trying to get the Windsors involved? What's your sense of their understanding of this issue? 
I, I have no insight into that, really. I'm related. I'm, I'm certainly would never make myself out to be a, a spokesman for the royal family. Uh, I've met Charles, King Charles, on, on several occasions, but we know we don't have a personal relationship, so I don't have any way uh, of of influencing what they do or what they don't do. Hmm. Why not? You are part of this group. They certainly, as a family, have benefited from slavery, as you mentioned, just like all the other people who have historical wealth. Mm -hmm. You don't feel it's your place to say what they should do as a citizen? Uh, no, I don't think I, I, I don't see myself in being in the position of telling anybody else what to do. I think you can tell people what we've done and why we've done it and how we've done it and what the outcomes of that have been. Mm -hmm. All right, fair enough. So, Laura, before we let you go, I did want to get your insights into how you think this discussion, this debate is playing out on both sides of the Atlantic. Your experience in the UK is a lot of it just isn't talked about. In the United States, there seems to be it's talked about, but often with a sense of fury. How do you understand that? So you have a, a long overdue reckoning that's happening in Britain, which is definitely accelerated by the Black Lives Matter movement and the death of George Floyd. And then here in the United States, a debate which has been going on forever, because whereas in Britain, you know, enslavement was largely, was offshore in the Caribbean, here in the US, it was here in people's homes in, uh, out there on the cotton fields. And so we hope that now, uh, you know, 190 years after the abolition of slavery, that Britain's government can begin to negotiate with Caribbean governments to try to repair the damage. We've been speaking with Laura Trevelyan and David Lassos. They are both members of a group called Heirs of Slavery. Thank you both so much for talking to us. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll shows that Americans largely support abortion rights, but they also favor restrictions. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. And Comcast Business, with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile. All from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A vote in the House is expected this week on a Republican plan to raise the nation's debt ceiling in exchange for government spending cuts. As NPR's Windsor Johnston reports, the proposal was put together by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy is facing his first major test as House Speaker, whether he can get members of his own party to vote for the plan and get President Biden back to the bargaining table. The two sides have been deadlocked for months over the terms for lifting the borrowing limit. Democrats keep pushing for a bill with no strings attached, while Republicans want to tie the debt ceiling to a series of cuts in government spending. A vote could occur as early as today. President Biden and South Korea's President Yoon Song-yeol are expected to announce new defense strategies today aimed at deterring North Korea from using nuclear weapons. NPR's Anthony Kuhn in Seoul says Yoon will be at the White House this morning for a state visit. 
A U.S. official told reporters anonymously that the U.S. is going to deploy a ballistic missile submarine to the area around South Korea for the first time since the 1980s. The two countries are also going to issue what they're calling a Washington Declaration, and part of that will be the establishment of a new consultative group modeled on what the U.S. had with European allies during the Cold War. That's NPR's Anthony Kuhn. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Flooding caused by rising sea levels could eventually cost the MBTA more than $50 million in damage annually. A study published this week in the journal Nature estimates that costs related to coastal flooding have already doubled over the last decade and a half. Underground and low-lying sections of the transit system are particularly vulnerable to rising seas. The report's authors recommend quick action to mediate future costs. The Springfield Arson and Bomb Squad is investigating an explosion at a recycling center that injured three people. Springfield Fire Department crews responded to the explosion yesterday at the J.F. Friedman Recycling Facility. Three workers went to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Massachusetts Democratic Congressman Jim McGovern is criticizing a proposal by House Republicans to make spending cuts in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. McGovern says the debt ceiling should be increased. He calls the GOP proposal reckless because it requires cuts to safety net programs. This is a ransom note to the American people that makes devastating, draconian cuts to programs that help the poor, the hungry, the sick and the vulnerable. Children's, seniors, veterans, and people with disabilities. Regardless of the proposal's fate in the House, the bill has little chance of passing the Democratic-controlled Senate. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Celtics are recovering from a stunning loss against Atlanta last night. The Seas fell to the Hawks in the fourth quarter and ultimately lost by two points. That means the teams will face off in Atlanta tomorrow night for Game 6. The Red Sox beat the Orioles on the road last night. Final score was 8-6. to six. That series is now tied. The teams will play one more time in Baltimore this afternoon. And the Bruins' playoff run continues tonight at the Garden. They currently lead the Florida Panthers three games to one. A mix of sun and clouds today, along with temperatures in the low 50s. Tonight, more clouds move in and temperatures fall to the low 40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy in mid-50s with a chance of rain all day. It's 48 degrees in Boston. At 734, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. What do Americans really think about abortion rights? When the Supreme Court nullified the constitutional right to abortion, it cleared the way for a state-by-state fight. Some Republican-led states have passed multiple abortion restrictions. 
But voters, even in some conservative states, have rejected such moves, and Democrats insist they are defending the majority view. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro has been studying an NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll and finds a lot of nuances and complexities in the way Americans think. Domenico, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What are you finding? Well, the poll found that most people say they generally see themselves as supporting abortion rights. 61% said so. That's at or near an all-time high, not just for the Marist polls, but long list of surveys I've looked at over the last 20 years. Hmm. Um, about the same number disagree with the Dobbs decision overturning the landmark Roe decision that made abortion legal. And 61% also said that they either see themselves or someone they that they that either they themselves or someone they know has had an abortion. Wow. So this is very personal for most people. And when we peel back the onion, we find that there's broad support for at least some restrictions, but not as far as many Republicans in red states are going. Okay, so this is where the battle is. How restricted should abortion be? What kinds of restrictions are we talking about here? Yeah, there's a lot of gray area here. You know, only one in five think abortion should be legal in all circumstances, but only 9% think it should never be legal. So almost everyone is somewhere, almost everyone else is somewhere in the middle, depending on whether it's, we're talking about uh, exceptions for rape, incest, or the life of the mother, or at what stage in the pregnancy. And that makes it tough for some politicians, especially in this post-Roe world, to figure out a firm position. You know, take Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor running for president. She gave a speech yesterday on abortion before a group largely opposed to abortion rights. Here she is taking aim at the media for asking politicians about where they stand on specifics on abortion rights. They've turned a sensitive issue that has long divided people into a kind of gotcha bidding war. How many weeks are you for? How many exceptions are you for? And the list goes on. I mean, really, that's a punt. I mean, it's a non-position. You know, we ask these questions of politicians because they want people's votes and we think that they should tell people exactly what they stand for, especially on an issue where there is so much gray. We ask this in our surveys to find out what people think. You know, politicians don't always want to be that forthcoming because, as Haley said, she wants to find, quote, consensus, but it's not easy to find on this issue. And if your finger's in the wind, you're going to get blown over. It really takes leadership and we haven't seen it. What are people saying about some of the restrictions that are passing or being proposed in different states? Well, majority said that they are against six-week bans and banning access to medication abortions with a prescription drug like mifepristone. And that includes a majority of Republicans. You know, majorities also say they support allowing abortion at any time if the life of the mother is at risk or in cases of rape or incest. That includes a majority of Republicans, too. Mm. You know, respondents also want states where abortion is legal to be safe havens for those who are seeking abortions coming from other states. But on this, a majority of Republicans are not in favor of that. That really puts Republican presidential candidates in the potentially difficult position of opposing safe havens to appeal to the GOP base, but risking turning off persuadable voters in a general election like lots of other things we've seen. Domenico, that's really clear. Thanks so much. You're welcome. That's NPR's senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. For the most part, a ceasefire continues to hold in Sudan. Diplomats are struggling to bring the country back from the brink. Two rival generals are fighting for power and dashing hopes of a transition back to civilian rule. The U.S. had to suspend operations at the embassy, but Secretary of State Antony Blinken insists that the U.S. is not giving up on Sudan, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. 
Amjad Farid has temporarily moved his family out of Khartoum as fighters take over whole neighborhoods and put civilians at risk. He was an advisor to the prime minister who was ousted over a year ago, and he's looking to the U.S. to do more to get Sudan back on track. The U.S. is claiming to uh, be supporting the democratic transition towards civilian government in Sudan. I'm just calling on Biden administration to walk the talk of what they claim. Farid says lots of countries meddle in Sudan. Russian mercenaries have helped one of the generals. Egypt backs the other. But he's also frustrated with U.S. diplomats, who he says should have been much tougher with the generals, rather than, in his words, coddling them. Cuddling uh, those generals too much uh, into the way that it fed their lust for power and led to war. One former U.S. official who has worked on Sudan, Cameron Hudson, thinks the U.S. miscalculated, putting too much trust in what the generals said about their commitment to restoring civilian control. He says Sudan had been trying to emerge from decades of authoritarian rule when the generals upended that transition. To see it kind of fall apart now and the whole country kind of go up in flames, I think is a, um, you know, is a real bad signal for the ability of the United States and its allies to help bring about these kinds of transitions, not only in Sudan, but all across the region. There is a lot at stake in Sudan, says Susan Stigant, who runs the Africa program at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Sudan sits at the crossroads between North Africa, the Sahel, the Horn of Africa, and into the Red Sea, where I think it's upwards of $700 billion of economic trade flows. And so having a stable Sudan that looks to the United States as a partner, as a core partner, that's incredibly strategic. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have financial interests in Sudan. Egypt shares a long border and a significant source of water, the Nile. And Stigan says the U.S. has to make sure that all the countries are on the same page to get a more permanent ceasefire and get the political transition back on track. This is not going to work with 17 different initiatives that are going in 17 different directions or where there's just a small amount of of agreement. Um, It's really going to require a rethink. And I think that's part of the role that the United States can play, right? Many of these countries are close partners. The U.N. Secretary General is calling on countries to help bring Sudan back from the brink of abyss. Diplomats are concerned that if the fighting continues, rebels from other conflicts could be drawn in. Cameron Hudson puts it this way. If you look at where Sudan sits on the map, it is surrounded by a host of highly fragile states, which are all either currently in some kind of internal rebellion or coming out of some kind of civil conflict. And so whether that's Libya, Chad, the Central African Republic, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, these are all highly fragile states. The U.S. long considered Sudan a state sponsor of terrorism. Hudson says many of the same actors responsible for atrocities are still on the political stage. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. In just a few minutes at 745, we hear about all the drama in the first round of the NBA playoffs, including injuries to key players and older stars flexing their aging muscles. In your forecast, low 50s today under mostly overcast skies, still cloudy tonight and in the low 40s. Tomorrow may start with a little fog, then we'll have mid-50s and cloudy skies with a chance of showers. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. Plans are in motion to renovate White Stadium in Franklin Park. The stadium is used for Boston Public Schools sports and community events. The city plans to lease half of the stadium to fund renovations. The city itself will fund the rest. City officials tell the Boston Globe the stadium could be used as a home base for a Boston franchise of the National Women's Soccer League. Boston-based Spectrum Pharmaceuticals will soon be under new ownership. Illinois-based Assertio Holdings is buying the company for nearly $250 million. The sale comes after the FDA rejected Spectrum's lung cancer drug. The company laid off a majority of its staff soon after. A new office building and lab space will soon be constructed along Route 1 in Norwood. The development will replace nearly half of the former campus of Insurer FM Global. It's 744. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Tonight's pro basketball playoff games feature intriguing storylines, including an NBA series that may be altered by a broken finger. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman is covering the story. Hey there, Tom. Hi, your finger expert here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Careful about which finger, but which series and whose finger? 
<laughs> it is the fractured tip of the left index finger belonging to Sacramento Kings guard De'Aaron Fox, who was launched into stardom this season and in a riveting first-round playoff series going on right now versus the defending champion Golden State Warriors. Problem is, Steve, his left hand is his shooting hand, and if he plays, and he says he's determined to do so, that mm. left finger could affect his performance, and he is the engine of a very talented Sacramento team. So we've got an all-California series here, Golden State, Sacramento. How big is Game 5 in this best-of-seven series? Big. The series is tied 2-2. It is balanced on this symbolic edge between Sacramento proving it's an exciting new team to be reckoned with, and Golden State's dynasty possibly faltering. The Warriors have won four NBA titles in the last eight years, but in this series, even when they've won, they've been pushed to the brink, especially Sunday's Game 4. It had the biggest TV audience for a first-round playoff game in more than 20 years. Golden State won by a point and survived some uncharacteristic mental mistakes near the end that almost cost them the game. Tonight's game is in Sacramento where the Kings have been dominant. Golden State has been terrible on the road this season, and they'll need to use all their championship DNA to get a win, which may be made easier by that broken finger. Aren't there some other injuries that are having an effect on the playoffs? Miami lost two top players to season-ending injuries, although that hasn't slowed down the heat, mainly because Jimmy Butler has been phenomenal. Butler had 56 points in the last wow. Miami wins. 56 points. That kind of scoring makes me think of your sports writing, Tom Goldman. I want people to know if they don't, you're saying goodbye today. Is, um, is retirement the word, by the way? Or is it you're stepping back? What are you doing? Well, like Serena Williams, I guess I'm evolving. Yeah, gotcha. I'm going okay. to be evolving. Yeah. Well, I'm going to miss you. Tom Goldman has covered Super Bowls. He's covered soccer. He's covered women's sports of all kinds. And also the stories that we're about to hear a couple of clips of. Here's the beginning of a report from the Beijing Olympics in 2008, where, Tom, you got a story out of the McDonald's in the press center cafeteria at every Olympics. The Mickey D's always have friendly natives to serve up a double cheeseburger and Coke, but I have never encountered a McDonald's greeter. Hello, sir. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Nor have I ever seen the counter help a dozen strong break into a well-rehearsed cheer. There's also a story here of your feature with Jack LaLanne, the exercise guru who helped you, I guess, work off that McDonald's. You talked with him when he was, I think, 89, and he got you exercising by standing up from your chair. Don't use your hand. Sit down. Stand up. Now, get your, your buttocks only about a half inch off the chair. You feel that, don't you? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Tom, do you plan to follow that routine when you step away? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't. I'm going to relax. Okay, sure. I'll stand up and sit down every now and then, Steve, but I'm going to, I'm going to relax. Um, I will say in parting, I have really enjoyed talking to you over the years. Now I'm going to shut up and you can keep going. Thank you. Thank you for your decades of service and for making us better. Really appreciate that. You bet. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman. This is NPR News. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The Taliban says it has killed the mastermind behind a suicide bombing that killed a Massachusetts Marine and 12 other service members during the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The president of South Korea will meet with President Biden in D.C. today ahead of his visit to Boston later this week. Meanwhile, U.S. lawmakers still haven't come to an agreement on raising the nation's debt ceiling. Republicans want spending cuts first. Democrats say those cuts are unacceptable. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Since two black lawmakers were expelled from the Tennessee legislature for taking part in a protest, politicians in other states worry they aren't immune to similar actions. If you don't think it can happen in Georgia, you're sadly mistaken. The rules are made for those who are in the minority, not majority. I'm Elsa Chang. The debate over decorum on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, we hear from the co-hosts of a new podcast that explores Michael Jackson's legacy and the ways he shaped American culture. And at 810, South Korea's president is in D.C. today. He's expected to focus on North Korea's growing nuclear arsenal in a joint press conference with President Biden. It's 7.51. And a quick look at your forecast. More clouds than sun today, along with temperatures in the low 50s. Tonight, those fall to the low 40s and skies stay overcast. Tomorrow may start with a little fog. Then we'll have mostly cloudy skies that may give way to rain. It'll be in the mid-50s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston. And you're with WBUR. WBUR supporters include an evening with Italian tenor Andrea Bocelli. Live at TD Garden on December 6th. Tickets available now at Ticketmaster.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. There's already a hit Broadway show, documentaries, films, and another biopic in the works all about Michael Jackson, the king of pop, whose brilliant artistry can't be discussed without also noting allegations about his sexual abuse of boys. Now a new podcast takes a hard look at that complicated legacy. It's called Think Twice. Hip-hop radio veteran Jay Smooth is one of the co-hosts. Growing up in Harlem, listening to him with my cousins, is connected to so many memories and relationships in my life. And yet at the same time, over the course of Michael's life and career, I came to see him in many ways as this sort of heartbreaking, tragic figure and someone who may well have done awful things to others. And that's remains really unsettled for me what to do with all of that. Journalist Leon Nafok, the other co-host, picks up the story explaining why they begin the series not with his rise to fame or tragic death in 2009, but in 1993. We decided to start sort of in what we came to think of as the exact middle of the story in 1993. And that was because it was the height of Michael's fame, uh, maybe not his creative peak, if you consider Thriller his creative peak, uh, but it was a moment when he was as big as he'd ever been. And then later that year, it all fell apart, at least for a while, when the first allegations of child sexual abuse were leveled against him. Hmm. You know, one of the central storylines of the first episode is this film, a short film that he wanted to make with Stephen King. It was called Is This Scary? I just wasn't sure to make of it, but tell me a little bit about why you included that. And why we led with it, right? So to me, Is This Scary, which is like a forgotten artifact, uh, you know, for most people, it's on YouTube. I don't know exactly how it 
got on there, but you know, it never came out. But the plot of the video, which was co-authored with Stephen King, is a sort of horror-themed video in which Michael plays this strange man in a haunted house, and he's accused of hanging out with children from this neighboring town and scaring them like with his magic and with his jokes. And the parents think it's bad for them. The parents think that it's scaring the children. And, you know, in the video, there's like this mob pursuing him with pitchforks and making all these accusations. We want you out of town. You don't fit in here. You're not like us. Why do I have to be? And what struck us about this video is that it was made before anyone had accused Michael of anything. In fact, the accusations happened like during the production, which was called off when the first media reports about Jordan Chandler came out. And I was just so fascinated that this was the story Michael wanted to tell. And, you know, you said, I don't know quite what to make of it. And I, I hate to disappoint, but I don't quite know what to make of it either. But I think what we tried to do in this show is just say what happened as best we can and as best as we can figure out the facts. The other piece about Michael's legacy that's so kind of complicated, the role he plays kind of culturally in the racial kind of conversation, Jay, right? Yeah. You know, you feature in the podcast his unexpected attendance at the 1994 NAACP Image Awards. But there was always this kind of interesting question about his racial identity and how he thought about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a through line through so much of his life, even starting in Gary. And it was such an honor to get to go to Gary, Indiana and speak to elders who were around at that time, other musicians who were coming up in Gary, playing in Chitlin Circuit venues there and learning uh, how limited your potential to sort of become a star could be as a black artist at that time. And Michael and his brothers connecting with Motown and Motown's mission to figure out how to make a black artist or a black group into this universally pleasing pop star for America right at the tail end of the civil rights movement. I think all throughout Michael's life, you will see he had, I think, more of an investment and a connection to his blackness than a lot of people assume. I think that's one way in which people have been unfair to him over the years, hmm. sort of assuming that he was fleeing from his blackness, which I think you'll hear in the series is not the case. But at the same time, I think he strived and wished to be this universal figure for everyone as well. And I think that tug of war over time, um, along with all the other ways he was trying to navigate being in the brightest spotlight anyone's ever been in. I think you see that reverberate through his life in so many ways. And at those NAACP awards, I think you see him sort of trying to come back home uh, to his black audience and sort of rally support for him in, uh, in this hmm. time of hardship and turmoil for him. Members of the NAACP have been jailed and even killed in the noble pursuit of those ideals upon which our country was founded. None of these goals is more meaningful for me at this time in my life than the notion that everyone is presumed to be innocent. But then, Jay, you go on to kind of pose the question, is it genuine or is this a question of using the community to cover for him? Yeah, it's one of many moments where it's difficult to know exactly how to interpret. I mean, certainly many of the things that he's saying on that uh, NAACP award stage are true um, about historically black men not being considered innocent until proven guilty. But it also could be taken as sort of convenient for him to be speaking this explicitly about those issues when it also serves his own purposes of attempting to defend himself. Since Michael Jackson, in fact, contemporaneous with Michael Jackson and subsequently, we have learned a lot about how abusive 
some major figures in Hollywood can be. As consumers of their artistry, what's our role in this? People just don't know what to do with his greatness and his genius on the one hand with the, you know, profound damage that he's alleged to have done to the people in his life. And I wanted to give people new ways to process those contradictions by, like, providing all this new raw material, all this firsthand testimony about how Michael Jackson became Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. And I think we didn't come in here to say you shouldn't listen to Michael Jackson or you should and you should believe this or you should believe that. For me, what's interesting is just like how our culture processes these kinds of allegations in aggregate and sort of how we decide what we believe and what we move on from and what we are able to kind of compartmentalize in our heads. And there's an episode later in the series about his trial in which our main focus is on the fans who showed up to support him. And we're interested in why they were there. And we wanted to give them a voice in explaining what it meant to them to to be there and to stand up for him. And so I think uh, to your question, like, this is as much a story about us and about how American culture works, how global culture works, and how history and memory work, as much as it is a story about Michael himself. That's Leah Nafak and Jay Smooth. They're the co-hosts of a new podcast about Michael Jackson. It's called Think Twice. It's a co-production from Audible and the podcast network Wondery, and it's out tomorrow. Leah Nafak, Jay Smooth, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Low 50s and mostly overcast today. Low 40s tonight, then cloudy and mid-50s tomorrow. It's 49 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden is expected to renew U.S. pledges to protect South Korea from a growing nuclear arsenal in North Korea as South Korea's president visits D.C. It's Wednesday, April 26th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Supreme Court hears arguments today in a case where the state of Minnesota seized a woman's house for unpaid property taxes, then sold the home for more than the woman owed. We call that home equity theft because it's essentially legalized government theft. And this hour, House Republicans want new work requirements for food stamp recipients in exchange for a debt ceiling hike. Hunger advocates are pushing back. It's a strategy that is only certain to take food away from people. It is not going to improve their employability or their prospects in the labor market. Plus, remembering Harry Belafonte, the groundbreaking singer, actor, and civil rights activist. Mostly cloudy and low 50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is working to hold a vote as early as this week on a proposal that would increase the debt limit. It would be in exchange for cuts in federal spending. As NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports, McCarthy is still working to win support for this from fellow Republicans. McCarthy is whipping votes in the House and remains confident a vote could come as soon as this week. 
but several House Republicans are pushing for changes to keep ethanol tax incentives. This bill is to get us to the negotiating table. It's not the final provisions, and there's a number of members that will vote for it going forward to say there are some concerns they have with it. The bill would increase the country's borrowing limit by $1.5 trillion or through March of next year, whichever comes first. And it aims to erase key aspects of President Biden's agenda, including his college loan forgiveness proposal and many of the climate provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. The bill passed last year. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. Ukrainian and Chinese officials say that Chinese President Xi Jinping held a phone conversation today with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The Ukrainian leader says the conversation was meaningful. Zelensky also says Ukraine will send an ambassador to China. The Biden administration says it's taking new steps to protect South Korea from its neighbor, North Korea. One of those steps is deploying a nuclear-armed submarine to South Korea. The South Korean leader is making a state visit to President Biden today. Former President Donald Trump is in the second day of a civil trial in New York City. Writer E. Jean Carroll has accused him of rape and defamation. NPR's Ilya Meritz reports Trump's team is striking at Carroll's credibility. In his opening statement, Trump attorney Joseph Takapina said Carol's story is a fabrication and that she's motivated by money and fame. He said her allegations are an affront to justice and that they harm real rape victims. Carol says Trump locked her in a department store changing room nearly 30 years ago and raped her. And her lawyers say they can produce a host of witnesses to corroborate this version of events, even without video or forensic evidence. Carol herself plans to take the stand, as well as two other women who say Trump made aggressive sexual advances on them as well. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. The chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrat Dick Durbin of Illinois, says his panel plans to examine ethics at the U.S. Supreme Court during a hearing next week. NPR's Giles Snyder says the chief justice is declining to appear. Senator Durbin says his committee will consider what he calls common sense proposals to hold justices more accountable, following published reports about the ties between Justice Clarence Thomas and a wealthy conservative donor. Durbin issued a statement after Chief Justice John Roberts declined to appear at the hearing, citing the separation of powers and judicial independence. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Western Massachusetts child care centers receive less in state subsidies to operate than centers in eastern Massachusetts. That's according to a new report from the Center for Early Learning Funding Equity. It points to state data showing that despite the difference in state funding, child care centers in both regions spend about the same to operate. Child care providers say the low reimbursement rates discourage child care centers in Western Mass from accepting poor families. The operator of ferries between Cape Cod and the islands says staffing shortages will cause a reduction in service. The Steamship Authority says four captains who were expected to work this summer have pulled out of the gig. The authority says it only learned about the changes a few days ago. Most are due to family and medical leaves. Spokesperson Sean Driscoll says that means evening service from Hyannis to Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard will be reduced until at least mid-June. There will be a couple of fewer options for people, so we'll have to do some rearranging as far as people or automobiles that are already booked on that, those trips, and our reservation staff is working on that as we speak. But, you know, we're going to maintain the same high level of service that we do year-round. The Steamship Authority says it's trying to expedite the process for existing employees to step into the roles. 
East Hampton school officials plan to pause their search for a new superintendent. They will instead hire an interim superintendent for a year. The move comes after one candidate withdrew herself from consideration after offensive posts were found on her Facebook page. The original candidate had his offer rescinded after using the term ladies in an email to the committee chair. A Somerville music studio that closed its doors 18 months ago is opening again at a new space in Cambridge. WBUR's Ariel Gray has more. Q Division has hosted legendary musicians like Yo-Yo Ma and Wiz Khalifa, but the studio closed its doors in Davis Square in 2021. Co-founder and owner John Lupfer says it's been a long road to reopening, and he's excited for what's to come. It's making me really, really happy. It's been a lot of like friends stopping by and it feels like I have a space in which to invite people to come and make music. And it's, it just it feels great. New features include updated studios and access to vintage and modern instruments and technology. Q Division Studios is currently booking recording sessions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, mathworks.com. The Celtics fell to Atlanta last night, 119 to 117. That means their first-round playoff series moves on to Game 6. The Seas currently lead the Hawks three games to two. The teams will face off again tomorrow in Atlanta. Meanwhile, the Red Sox are celebrating a road win. They beat the Orioles last night by two runs. That series is now tied. They play their final game this afternoon. And the Bruins are back at TD Garden tonight for Game 5 of their playoff series against Florida. They skate with the Panthers at 7 p.m. In your forecast, we have mostly cloudy skies today and high temperatures in the low 50s. Tonight, temperatures dip to the low 40s. There's a slight chance of showers overnight. Tomorrow, patchy fog in the early morning and a chance of rain throughout the day. Otherwise, mostly cloudy with temperatures reaching the high 50s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 807. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Today we hear from a country that would rather not be caught in the competition between the United States and China. That country is South Korea. China is its big neighbor and trading partner. The U.S. is South Korea's vital ally and defender against its enemy, North Korea. In fact, this year marks the 70th anniversary of the U.S. alliance with South Korea. President Yoon sung yeol will receive a formal welcome and be honored at a state dinner tonight by President Biden. NPR's Anthony Kuhn is following all this from the South Korean capital, Seoul. Hey there, Anthony. Hey, Steve. What do the presidents do? Well, uh, this is the first state visit by a South Korean leader in 12 years, and the visit began Tuesday evening with a visit by the leaders and their spouses to Washington, D.C.'s Korean War Memorial. Oh, which is an evocative spot. You've got these uh, statues of, of American soldiers walking seemingly through the rain in, in, in South Korea, kind of right. a very, very powerful place. Yeah, it's a reminder of the conflict out of which the alliance was born. Then today, the main part of the visit, we have the welcoming ceremony, bilateral talks, a joint press conference, and a state dinner. President Yoon is going to address a joint session of Congress on Thursday, and then he's going to round out the visit with a trip to Boston to uh, visit Harvard and MIT. 
And he's got a huge delegation of business executives who are signing billions of dollars worth of deals. And also thinking about North Korea, which has been testing a bunch of missiles. So what will the two leaders have to say about that? Well, a U.S. official told reporters anonymously that the U.S. is going to deploy a ballistic missile submarine to the area around South Korea for the first time since the 1980s. The two countries are also going to issue what they're calling a Washington Declaration. And part of that will be the establishment of a new consultative group modeled on what the U.S. had with European allies during the Cold War. Now, the South Koreans have been asking for, and the U.S. has been promising, more consultation on how they're going to deter North Korea, and also more military hardware deployments to the region. So basically, these are additions to policies about which we've been reporting for some time. And at the end of the day, this is about reassuring a jittery South Korean public and about perceptions and about repackaging and reselling policies that have already been announced. Do the two presidents agree on how to approach China? Well, there's some frictions. Uh, There's one story this week that uh, China is conducting a national security review into U.S. chip maker Micron, and the U.S. government would reportedly like South Korea semiconductor makers Samsung and SK Hynix not to take Micron's market share if China punishes Micron. Hmm. President Yoon talked about this issue of supply chains in Washington last night. Let's hear what he said. South Korea and the United States are the best partners in building stable supply chains, he said, because we share values and have close economic ties. We can trust each other. So that's how he sees it. But China is a huge market for South Korean chip makers, and the U.S. request has led to criticism that President Yoon is putting the alliance ahead of national interest. So the request puts Seoul in a tight spot. Anthony, thanks very much for the insights. Always appreciate hearing from you. Thank you, Steve. That's NPR's Anthony Kuhn in Seoul. During his tenure at Fox News, Tucker Carlson was known for pushing views that had been considered the domain of a far-right fringe onto a mainstream conservative audience. So now some are wondering if his departure might change the tone at Fox. To help answer that, we called Nicole Hemmer, a political historian at Vanderbilt University, who's been writing about conservative politics and media. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So we know what happened at Fox. The powers that be let Carlson go so fast, they didn't even give him a farewell show. But I'm not sure we fully know why, whether it was his role in, say, pushing election lies, which led to this, you know, very expensive lawsuit or his workplace conduct, whether that was the key factor. But even having said that, do you think Carlson's departure is an indication that Carlson's rhetoric was becoming too much even for Fox? It's entirely possible, but Tucker Carlson's rhetoric has been one of the most important drivers of audience to Fox News. He has been the most popular show on Fox, in fact, the most watched show in cable news history since 2020. And that makes him pretty powerful, and it makes his messaging pretty important to the direction that Fox News has been going over the past six or seven years. So his rhetoric maybe got him in trouble, but it's actually been... Um, one of the most defining features, not just of his show, but of Fox News during the Trump era. But, you know, in 2011, Fox parted ways with Glenn Beck. And then in 2017, Bill O'Reilly was forced out. Both of them were network stars. You know, they've gone on to do other projects, but it doesn't seem that they've maintained that kind of same level of influence. Do you think Carlson's situation is different? 
Carlson's situation is different, not because he will be able to maintain the same level of influence, but we're not really sure if he will, but because Fox News is in a particularly precarious place with its audience. Since the 2020 election, when they called the election for Joe Biden, there was a real um, rush of the audience away to other sources like Newsmax. Tucker Carlson was really instrumental in bringing that audience back, but there's a level of distrust between parts of the Fox audience and Fox News. And this is just another piece of evidence for that part of the audience that perhaps Fox News isn't entirely on their side. So what do you think happens now? I mean, do you think Carlson goes to another platform? Because they exist now. It seems quite likely that he will find a place on streaming sites like Rumble, or maybe he will um, have his own radio show or something that will allow him to continue to harvest or to reach out to that audience that he's cultivated on Fox News. It's going to put him in a different position um, because Fox still is king when it comes to conservative television, Um, but he certainly has polling power. And so I'm not particularly worried about Carlson's career going forward. No, that's not the question, because as you point out in one of your op-eds that, you know, he's already the heir to a a fortune. This isn't really about his kind of economic well-being. I think it's really more about what what this says more broadly. But well, first of all, where does Fox go from here? And and what do you, I mean, I'm asking you to speculate, so apologies for that, but where do you think Fox goes from here? And where do you think, how does that kind of affect the media landscape going forward, especially as we are now heading into the 2024 election cycle? It's going to be very difficult for Fox because it needs to shore up that Tucker Carlson viewership. And so you would anticipate they might put someone in that time slot um, who tries to keep Carlson's audience attached to Fox News. But if it was his rhetoric that got him in trouble, that really does wedge Fox when they're trying to figure out how do we reach out to this Trump base, especially in advance of the 2024 election, um, while trying to avoid some of the, the pitfalls of Carlson, um, particularly the way that he and other hosts on the network have opened it up to lawsuits. And so this whole question of whether Fox really is promoting journalism at this point, I mean, this was something that was kind of a... Well, this is a difficult question for journalists and other organizations to sort of address. It's a difficult question for some politicians to sort of handle. Do you think that they see themselves differently now? Are they still arguing that they are journalists or that they are political activists who are on television? What What do you think? I think there are some people in Fox News who would like to still promote themselves as journalists. I think they've lost quite a lot of credibility with other news organizations. You know, back in 2009, um, when the Obama administration sort of went to war with Fox, it was other journalists who defended the network. I don't think that there's that same kind of relationship between Fox News and other outlets these days. Um, So there may be people at Fox who present themselves as journalists. I'm not sure that other outlets have their back anymore. That's Nicole Hammer, a political historian at Vanderbilt University. Professor Hammer, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, sometimes listening to the news can add to people's stress. We can be honest about that. It can raise your blood pressure to pay attention to the news. So let's take a moment to lower it. Spring has reached the Adirondack Mountains in northern New York, and North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell went for a hike. I'm heading up Hackensack Mountain, a rocky ridge that rises up from the small town of Warrensburg, New York. 
This place has been blanketed in ice and snow for months, but on this spring day, it's thrumming back to life. This is so amazing. I'm standing here on the trail and it's just like this chorus of wildlife around me. Chipmunks and birds, my dog out exploring. It's so beautiful. Dried pine needles crunch beneath my boots. The trail is short and steep, so I have to grip onto roots and rocks to haul myself up the mountain. There's a moment when everything around me falls silent, except for one lone woodpecker searching for food. The trail has become really dynamic, like just these big, sharp boulders. So I'm, I'm having to hop from one to another. As I climb towards the summit, the trees thin out. That lets in more of the bright spring sunshine, which seeps into my skin. I haven't felt warmth like this in months. And then the trail guides me out onto the summit, a rocky ledge overlooking the tiny Adirondack town below. You can see little churches and shops and homes and and there's birds flying above me. This is just so special. In a place where winter grips on for as long as it can, it feels like spring is finally here. For NPR News, I'm Emily Russell in Warrensburg, New York. That was beautiful. Although it also brings one of the sounds of spring to my house, Michelle, which is the sound of sniffling. I'm sorry, I was sneezing. Sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Here, let me hand you a tissue. So much Claritin. So much Claritin. <laughs> it is a great season to get outside, though. My seven-year-old the other day got new shoes, and she said, I want to go for a run. And then she wanted to pick four-leaf clovers during the run, and then she decided it could just be a hike. I'd go for the shoes. There you go. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in a couple minutes on Morning Edition, the Supreme Court hears arguments today in a case that asks whether states should profit from the sale of properties that have been seized for unpaid property taxes. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet School's Next Generation, highlighting the best arts training in Boston at the Citizens Bank Opera House on Friday, May 19th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, a standoff at the Bristol County Jail, hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage, and renewed questions about inmate living conditions. WBUR's Deborah Becker joins us from the newsroom on the incident and what it says about new Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harrow's plans for change. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly cloudy today with a high around 52. Tonight, still mostly cloudy and a low around 42. Overnight, there's a chance of rain. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy again with rain possible and a high around 55. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 820. Today on the Common Podcast, Boston's rent control proposal needs approval from the state legislature in order to become law. But most of those lawmakers own their homes. For a deeper look at that tension, find the Common on your podcast app. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Getting behind on the bills is something a lot of people struggle with at one time or another. And today, the last day of oral arguments for the term, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear a case about this, or at least where that's a factor. It centers on a 94-year-old Minneapolis woman whose condominium was seized by Hennepin County because of unpaid property taxes. NPR Legal Affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg explains. Geraldine Tyler bought her condo in Minneapolis in 1999 and lived there until 2010 when, at age 81, she moved to a senior assisted living center at the urging of her children. After that, she stopped paying taxes on the condo, which she still owned. She does not dispute that the county repeatedly notified her that she risked losing the condo if she didn't pay up, and by 2015 she owed $15,000 in unpaid taxes, interest, and fees. Finally, the county took possession of the property under state law and sold the condo at auction for $40,000. But like at least a dozen other states, it did not pay Tyler the surplus, here $25,000 from the sale. Represented by the Pacific Legal Foundation, Tyler subsequently went to court, contending that by keeping the excess, the county had unconstitutionally taken her property. We call that home equity theft because it's essentially legalized to government theft. Lawyer Christina Martin concedes that the county had the right to take Tyler's property for non-payment of taxes, but... When the government takes more than it's owed, that's ultimately wrong, and we believe it's unconstitutional unconstitutional, she says, because it is a taking of property without just compensation. But Hennepin County tells a very different story about the seizure of Geraldine Tyler's home. The county actually doesn't make a profit. The county doesn't even break even through its administration of the tax forfeiture laws. That's the county's lawyer, Rebecca Holsha. She notes that there are a variety of ways that homeowners can avoid forfeiture. The state has a payment plan that allows people to pay what they owe over a 10-year period. And for seniors like Tyler, there's a program allowing them to pay no more than 3% of their annual income. Holshaw says the county really would rather not be the default realtor. It doesn't want abandoned homes, which bring down property values, and it doesn't want to spend money to make a property sellable. And really, if somebody wants to pull their equity out of the property, the best way for them to do that is to sell the property themselves. She says that's why the state gives homeowners five years before forfeiture to either refinance their homes and pay back taxes or enter into a tax payment plan or sell the home and reap the profit. 
Indeed, the county asserts that Tyler had no equity in the home at the time of the forfeiture because she owed $48,000 on her mortgage and more than $11,000 in homeowners association fees, debts that were canceled under state law when the state declared the home forfeited for taxes. Again, Lawyer Holshaw. This is really a remedy of, of last result in which the title transfers to the state by default. Whoever's right, nobody disputes that losing a home can be devastating for families, and homeowners do tell some horrible tales elsewhere in the country. Tawana Hall and her husband moved out of Detroit to Southfield, Michigan, bought a rundown house, and began fixing it up. But the couple fell behind on tax payments, enrolled in a tax payment plan, and then fell behind again. The city subsequently took possession of the home and sold it to a developer for $1.00 who later sold it for $300,000. Former owner, Tawana Hall. It's a roller coaster ride. Uh, we put a lot into it, and it was supposed to be our forever home and our children's home. The people most often harmed by these property forfeitures for back taxes are the elderly, sick, or the vulnerable. That said, this is the first time that the Supreme Court has directly considered whether a property tax forfeiture, something that the court has long upheld, can be considered a taking under the Constitution. If it is, that poses other questions. Would the county have to maximize the sale price, not just put the property up for public auction? What if nobody wanted to buy the property at the higher price? What if there were competing claims on the property? County and local government associations have filed briefs contending that such a system would add to urban blight while crippling local government property tax collection, the very system that finances local schools, fire and police protection, safe drinking water, and much more. A decision in the case is expected by summer. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Okay, Michelle, how far would you go to raise awareness about something that really mattered to you? Um, <laughs> you're putting me on I the mean, spot. I've only you... had one cup of coffee. I don't know. Pretty far? I mean, literally, would you run for miles? Would you run for 100 miles even? Would you do that? I wish I could, Steve, but thankfully, uh, we've heard of somebody who can. Mike Riley can, and he can tell you exactly how far he'd go. He ran more than 100 miles, going for more than 24 hours. Wow. Riley is a firefighter in Asheville, North Carolina. And last weekend, he repeated a seven-mile loop for an entire day to bring attention to the link between firefighting and cancer. Well, just in my life as a uh, as a firefighter, cancer has affected me pretty dramatically in the last four years. The Asheville Fire Department's lost four active duty members to occupational cancer. Firefighters die from cancer at a higher rate than the general population, according to the CDC. And the World Health Organization says cancer is an occupational risk of this profession. I think a lot of things are still coming to light. The um, kind of the revelation that are not only are the things that are burning in fires are giving us occupational cancer, but our turnout gear itself is um, also contributing to the problem. His run raised money for early screening and testing, but he says the money was not the main goal. I was more interested in um, the awareness aspect and getting it out there to the public that this was something that needed to happen, that we were paying for our own physicals, our own screenings, and taking care of each other. 
Running 24 hours straight got brutal, as you can imagine, but towards the end, he was in good spirits. He says he was encouraged by all the people who came out to run alongside him. Those runs to raise awareness and money for other fire departments across the state of North Carolina. This is NPR News. Coming up in five minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is working to gain support within his own party for his proposal to raise the debt ceiling in exchange for spending cuts. It's 829. Check out the new podcast from WBUR in partnership with the Marshall Project. It's called Violation, and it tells the story of two families and a crime that's bound them together for decades. Listen to Violation wherever you get your podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Weston Nurseries, offering a broad selection of landscape-sized trees, shrubs, perennials, and native plants. In Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham, westonnurseries.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. North Korea and nuclear deterrence are expected to be a major focus when President Biden meets with South Korea's president today at the White House. As NPR's Franco Ordonez reports, Yoon Song-yeol is on a state visit to the U.S. The White House says the visit will commemorate the 70-year alliance between the United States and South Korea. But the administration is also growing more concerned about North Korea. A senior administration official told reporters there's recognition that North Korea's actions and rhetoric have been, quote, profoundly destabilizing in recent months. During the visit, the United States and South Korea will announce plans to take a series of steps designed to send a clear message, a message of deterrence in the face of North Korea's advancing nuclear missile capabilities. Those steps include the deployment of a U.S. nuclear ballistic submarine to South Korea, something U.S. officials say has not happened since the early 1980s. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Biden and Yoon are scheduled to hold a joint news conference this afternoon. China's President Xi Jinping spoke by phone today with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky about Russia's invasion of his country, which is now 14 months old. State media in Beijing reports Xi told Zelensky China wants to act as a mediator. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A federal judge is siding with Boston University in a lawsuit filed by students. The students wanted refunds after classes went online during the pandemic. They claim the school broke a contract when it kept their tuition without providing the full services they were paying for. The judge ruled that Boston University never promised to deliver an, quote, on-campus experience. The students have filed an appeal. And just to note, the Boston University holds the broadcast license for WBUR. The former Prime Minister of New Zealand will join Harvard University this year. Jacinda Ardern will begin two fellowships at the Kennedy School this fall. Ardern became Prime Minister in 2017 and voluntarily stepped down from the post this February. 
Longer naps may feel great, but they're not great for your health. That's according to a newly released study by researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital. It found a connection between long naps and health issues like poorer metabolism and heart health, along with a higher risk of obesity. But researchers say they did not find the same risks with shorter power naps. It's 832. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors, available at muzzinaudio.com. Atlanta surprised the Celtics with a victory in Game 5. The Hawks scored a last-second three-pointer to win. The Seas now only have a one-game lead in the series. Game 6 happens tomorrow in Atlanta. The Red Sox defeated the Orioles on the road last night. Final score was 8-6. to That series is now tied. The teams will play one more time in Baltimore this afternoon. The Bruins continue their playoff run back at home tonight. They currently lead the Florida Panthers three games to one. Game five begins at 7 p.m. A mix of sun and clouds today along with temperatures in the low 50s. Tonight more clouds move in and temperatures fall to the low 40s. Tomorrow mostly cloudy in mid 50s with a chance of rain all day. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 833. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to address a problem. The House Republican majority faces pressure to extend U.S. borrowing authority. The U.S. needs that in order to meet its obligations and avoid default. Republicans have said they won't do it unless they also get future spending cuts. But spending cuts are unpopular, and they have yet to fully agree on any plan that they would pass. Senate Democrats plan to reject whatever they pass, saying the U.S. should just pay its bills. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo is covering this story. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, this is about math. Republicans need 218 votes to pass anything that they can then negotiate over. Does Kevin McCarthy have a majority from among his own Republican members? Not right now. McCarthy is whipping for votes in the House currently, and he told reporters last night that he remains confident a vote could come as soon as this week. The bill would increase the country's borrowing limit by $1.5 trillion or through March of next year, whichever comes first. And it aims to erase much of President Biden's agenda, including his college loan forgiveness proposal and much of the Inflation Reduction Act, the major climate bill passed last year. But a group of House Republicans are pushing for changes on several provisions that deal with items like ethanol tax incentives and work requirements for safety net programs. Here he is giving an update on negotiations. This bill is to get us to the negotiating table. It's not the final provisions, and there's a number of members that will vote for it going forward to say there are some concerns they have with it. 
Several Midwestern lawmakers spent Tuesday in McCarthy's office negotiating provisions to keep biofuel tax credits and incentives. Since Democrats are all expected to vote no, McCarthy can really only spare a few GOP votes against the measure. And the White House yesterday also issued a statement that should the bill pass, Biden is ready to veto it. Again, the Democratic position here, of course, is this is a hostage situation. The U.S. should just pay its existing bills and that the uh, White House is not going to negotiate over paying the existing bills. McCarthy, though, is trying to shape something that cuts future spending in some way. What would happen to social safety net programs? Uh, Well, let's look specifically at food stamps. McCarthy wants to raise the age limit of adults 18 to 50 who do not have children and are considered, quote, capable from 50 to 56, effectively increasing the number of people who are subject to work requirements. Currently, they have to show that they are working 20 hours a week in order to get food stamps, and if they stop work or don't work enough hours for three months, they lose the benefits. But hunger advocates say that the change will push for more people off the program. Here's Ellen Bollinger, SNAP director for the Food Research and Action Center. It's a strategy that is only certain to take food away from people, it is not going to improve their employability or their prospects in the labor market. Bollinger argues that often the food benefit is being given to a person because they are not able to make enough money on their own to sustain themselves. I guess we should just remember also that food stamps are not the largest part of the budget here. It's things like defense and social security, which are not going to be touched. Um, What happens now? Well, if McCarthy manages to get the bill through the chamber, it would increase pressure on Biden to start some talks on what a compromise could look like. But many of the current provisions, like food stamp work requirements, are non-starter for Democrats. Now, even if the specific bail fails to get to Biden's desk, it does signal some of McCarthy's thinking when it comes to programs that could be negotiated in other packages coming later in the year. And Pierre Semena Bastillo, thanks as always. Thank you. There is something that some Republicans and Democrats agree on. It's concerns about a centrist political group called No Labels. The group is on the ballot in Colorado, Alaska, Oregon, and Arizona. The two main political parties are questioning its agenda and who is funding it. Ben Giles from member station KJZZ in Phoenix has this report. Ryan Clancy is the lead strategist at No Labels, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit trying to tee up the possibility, at least, of a third-party candidate running for president in 2024. We're going for as many states uh, as we can get across the country. In Arizona, rumors persisted that no labels could offer independent Senator Kirsten Sinema a new platform. But Clancy insists that no labels is a one-ticket operation, a presidential insurance policy for dissatisfied Republicans and Democrats. So the only way this works is if, in the view of the public, the major party nominees are unappealing enough and a potential unity ticket is appealing enough that there seems like a viable path to electoral college victory. No Labels hasn't yet decided if the conditions are ripe for a so-called unity ticket, but they're committed to facilitating the infrastructure for such a candidate, just in case. Yeah, if you want to use like a NASA analogy, we're building the launching pad for a potential unity ticket run. If a ticket were to actually run, they would have to build the rocket ship to get to the White House. Republicans and Democrats alike have raised concerns that no labels could play spoiler, especially as polls have shown broad dissatisfaction with the current 2024 frontrunners, President Biden and former President Donald Trump. No labels has gained access to the ballot in Arizona, Colorado, Alaska, and Oregon. In Arizona, it's run into another controversy. The Secretary of State now refers to it in legal documents as the no labels party, a label that the organization rejects. 
I mean, we're not a, a political party. We've never claimed to, to be one. Political parties and committees trying to influence the outcome of an election have to follow certain rules, like abiding by contribution limits and disclosing expenses. No Labels is a registered nonprofit, so it's not required to disclose where its funding comes from. We have an organization that wants to be recognized as a political party, but is simply not disclosing who their donors are. Attorney Roy Herrera is suing No Labels on behalf of the Arizona Democratic Party, which wants to bar the organization from the ballot. Democrats acknowledge in their suit that No Labels is a nonprofit. Instead, the case hinges on a technicality in how No Labels gathered enough signatures to qualify for the ballot. No Labels calls the lawsuit baseless. But to Eric Spencer, a former Arizona state elections director, those signatures could raise financial issues. He says if the signatures were paid for, which he assumes, state rules make it clear that no labels should have registered as a political committee. The Arizona Election Procedures Manual is reasonably clear that those qualification efforts are subject to campaign finance law. Federally, no labels exists in something of a gray area. To the Federal Election Commission, No Labels doesn't yet have to register as a political party thanks to a 15-year-old court case dealing with a previous third-party contender. Adav Nodi is legal director with the Campaign Legal Center. He argued the losing end of that case for the FEC. The court allowed you know, an organization in sort of similar circumstances to go forward without being subject to contribution limits or disclosure. And so that's what No Labels is is availing itself of now. That allows No Labels to operate as what Nodi calls the epitome of a dark money group. It's raising and spending money to influence elections, and it's raising and spending that money without being subject to contribution limits and without being subject to disclosure. As for No Labels, they're not talking about their finances. The organization did not respond to a follow-up question about whether they have an obligation to voters to disclose their donors. For NPR News, I'm Ben Giles in Phoenix. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, we look at the legacy of Harry Belafonte, the groundbreaking entertainer and civil rights activist. He died yesterday at age 96. In your forecast, low 50s today under mostly overcast skies, still cloudy tonight and in the low 40s. Tomorrow may start with a little fog, then we'll have mid-50s and cloudy skies with a chance of showers. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 8.43. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Athena Health plans to move its headquarters from Watertown to Brighton. The new building was formerly used as a headquarters for Bose. Developers tell the Boston Business Journal the Watertown offices could be converted into lab space. Cambridge-based Vedanta Biosciences is receiving $106 million in new funding. The company says the money will be used to study how some of its drugs might be used to treat gastro gastrointestinal disorders. The funding will also move those therapies into mid- and late-stage clinical trials. The Museum of African American History has a new president and CEO. Noel Trent will start in June. Trent comes to the Boston area after spending seven years at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. It's 843. 
WBUR supporters include BMW with a range of up to 301 miles. The BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. Since two black lawmakers were expelled from the Tennessee legislature for taking part in a protest, politicians in other states worry they aren't immune to similar actions. If you don't think it can happen in Georgia, you're sadly mistaken. The rules are made for those who are in the minority, not majority. I'm Elsa Chang. The debate over decorum on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. From Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Tributes continue for Harry Belafonte. He died yesterday at the age of 96. He was a Hollywood actor and singer who popularized calypso music in the 1950s. Work all night and a drink a rum. He was also active in the civil rights movement and a close friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Here he is speaking at the March on Washington in 1963. Any society which ceases to respect the human aspirations of all its citizens courts political chaos and artistic sterility. We need the energies of these people to whom we have for so long denied full humanity. Here to talk with us about his legacy as publisher and author, Lavelle Levette. She wrote a children's biography of Belafonte. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So at the top, we heard part of his speech at the March on Washington. How else was he active in the civil rights movement? Well, Mr. Belafonte was a, uh, a leader that challenged us. You know, he challenged young artists to do more. He challenged everyone to do more. Uh, just so grateful for his presence and grateful for uh, the things that he helped us to um, become, you know, become a better, better person, become a better nation. So. What, what, what are some of the things people may not know about his legacy, particularly people who only know him as an entertainer? He had a tremendous t connection with, with uh, young activists, with young, with young people. Uh, he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. He wasn't afraid even in his later years to, uh, to challenge artists to do more. So um, I think that, um, you know, I think that people, particularly our young people today, um, didn't know that he was more than an entertainer. 
I'm thinking about the role he... Do you remember that he had a... I think we would call it a cameo, but it was a very impactful scene in Spike Lee's film, like Black Klansman, for example, where in the space of just a couple of minutes, he talked about the legacy of, you know, extra judicial killings and things of that sort. But he was just mesmerizing, even in just a few minutes on screen. You know, why, why do you want kids to know, in particular to know more about Harry Belafonte, mentioning earlier that you wrote a a children's book about him. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we must never forget. And I think that with the hustle and bustle of the world, the digital age, people on their computers and their devices, that we we tend to uh, forget about the, the struggle and the people that actually paved the way for us. And I think that it was very important for me Uh, to honor him, you know, this great warrior of social justice. I wanted people, particularly young people and young parents, to know about his life and legacy and what he stood for. All right, that is Lavelle Levette. She's the author of Harry Belafonte, A Little Golden Book. Lavelle Levette, thanks so much for joining us. All right, thank you for having me. All my days I will sing in praise of your forest, waters of shining sand. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the growing movement by countries around the world to detach their currency from the U.S. dollar. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. Since two black lawmakers were expelled from the Tennessee legislature for taking part in a protest, politicians in other states worry they aren't immune to similar actions. If you don't think it can happen in Georgia, you're sadly mistaken. The rules are made for those who are in the minority, not majority. I'm Elsa Chang. The debate over decorum on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The World Health Organization is warning of a biological risk as fighters seize control of a public health laboratory in Sudan. President Joe Biden will meet with the South Korean president today in D.C. as the U.S. prepares to send submarines to the Korean Peninsula. And a new report shows Boston projects funded by pandemic relief money might not be financially sustainable once that funding runs out. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Bass, Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. More clouds than sun today, along with temperatures in the low 50s. Tonight, those fall into the low 40s and skies stay overcast. Tomorrow may start with a little fog. Then we'll have mostly cloudy skies that may give way to rain. It'll be in the mid-50s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 851. 
Tucker Carlson and the future of cable news. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by BuySide from The Wall Street Journal, an independent commerce site designed to help consumers make smart decisions with their time and money. WSJ.com slash BuySide. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshaw, in for David Brancaccio. Tucker Carlson brought Fox News 3 million-plus viewers each night, and yet many advertisers actually fled the time slot in recent years, uneasy about appearing to endorse his often inflammatory rhetoric. Now that Carlson's been fired, some analysts say those advertisers may come back to that primetime hour on the network. Across the board, though, cable news outlets are chasing after an ever-shrinking pool of advertising dollars. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has more on the business model of cable news. The needs of companies looking to advertise their wares are not all that complicated, says Matthew Tuttle, CEO of Tuttle Capital Management. Number one, I want to avoid controversy. Number two, I want viewers. Tucker Carlson's regular dose of election denialism and extreme right-wing views brought plenty of both. But in the last few years, his show featured a whole lot of My Pillow commercials and other direct-to-consumer ads of the Call Now ilk. Tuttle says with Carlson's departure... If I were an advertiser, I, I mean, I, I, I'd be calling right now. Even in the digital age, much of the money that 24-hour news networks make still comes from cable subscriptions. Jay Rosen, a journalism professor at New York University, says that's still the case, even after years of cord cutting among consumers. It's the price per cable customer that Fox and other channels get that's keeping them afloat. Rosen says Fox News can use the viewership numbers to draw advertisers, but the demographics of those viewers is a harder sell. The fact that their core audience is older, whiter, more conservative, and a kind of a hardcore Trumpist group limits the advertising revenue they can generate. But those customers aren't likely to bolt to streaming, Rosen says, and they could keep the antiquated business model of the cable news giants afloat for a while longer. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London, down three-tenths percent. Dow S&P and NASDAQ futures are up in the two-tenths to more than a full percent range, with the Dow future up 67 points, the 10-year Treasury yield is at 3.413%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by SoFi. SoFi Insights helps members track all of their money all in one place. SoFi Insights provides credit score monitoring, spending breakdowns, financial insights, and more. Learn more at SoFi.com, SOFI.com. Get your money right. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by The One Recipe Podcast. Host Jesse Sparks speaks to chefs and gifted cooks about their favorite recipe. Listen now and try the recipes for free. The U.S. dollar is used far beyond U.S. borders. Oil is traded in dollars. Some countries peg their currency to dollars. Some countries actually just use U.S. dollars altogether instead of their own. But there are calls for that to change. Earlier this month, Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva urged developing countries 
to use the U.S. dollar less to find an alternative. China and Brazil reached a deal to trade in their own currencies instead of using the dollar. But how significant is this call for de-dollarization, and what would it mean for the U.S.? Zongwu Yuan Zoe Liu is a fellow for international political economy at the Council on Foreign Relations and joins us to talk about it. Good morning. Good morning, Sabri. Does the U.S. gain anything or lose anything from having its currency used so widely? For Americans, this is actually quite convenient for us because you know when we travel abroad, when we buy stuff, we don't have to think about what if our currencies are not accepted. The other aspect for that it would be for American business. The idea that U.S. dollar is widely accepted in international transactions, and there is also actually political gains or geoeconomic gains for us as well. So, what's the downside for a country like Brazil or China, India, Saudi Arabia in using the dollar so extensively? So there are two risks. One is economic risk or transaction risk, and then the other is geoeconomic risk. Every single transaction it involves not just exchange rate risk. There is also transaction fee. That's the economic risk. And then the geoeconomic risk is very much pronounced now after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how the West sanctioned Russia. The idea that for a country that rely upon the U.S. dollar to make international transactions, and yet at any single moment you could potentially be kicked out of the dollar-denominated international system. Do you think the increased use of sanctions by the U.S. in recent years, looking at Iran, looking at Russia, has Created more of an incentive or desire to get away from the dollar. I would say yes. The risk of being sanctioned is increasingly real. But I would clarify saying that it's not necessary that we want to get rid of the dollar because the dollar is still very much the international dominant currency. It's really about if they no longer have access to the dollar-denominated international system, what can they do? How realistic is it? That the dollar might be dethroned, so to speak. Right. I would say it's not necessarily that any other country could potentially, or a coalition of willings, if you will, could dethrone the dollar anytime soon. Although the financial plumbing is there, I would say the only way that the United States and U.S. dollar can be dethroned is probably going to be some strategic mistake. That the United States made on its own,、uh, you know, for example, the debt ceiling debate, or another 2007-2008 triggered or started from the United States. So, if the United States does not make a mistake on its own, I would say the risk of the U.S. dollar being dethroned in in our lifetime, I would say, is very minimum. Song Yuan Zoe Liu is a fellow for international political economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. In New York, I'm Sabri Benishur with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. Low 50s and mostly overcast today. Low 40s tonight, then cloudy and mid 50s tomorrow. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on nine o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com.
I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.